Welcome to The Consult Room, the podcast that celebrates pets and people. I'm Dr Paul Mangtolo. I'm a veterinary surgeon with a passion for the rich insights and stories about pets in the modern world that we live. Whether you're a pet owner, a pet professional, or you just love hearing about pets, then this is the space for you. In today's episode, we are talking about a subject that honestly, nobody really wants to talk about, but it's something that we all have to face. We all want our pets to live forever, but the reality is that at some point, most of us will have to make that difficult decision as to when to let them go. It's no wonder that we find this hard. Research tells us that 95% of pet owners consider their pets as family members. But of course, we don't usually have to make that decision for our human family. So it comes as no surprise that making the decision to euthanize our pets can be an extremely difficult and emotional one. Today, I'm joined by Annie Clark, who has worked as an emergency and critical care veterinary nurse for 11 years and works with me at Home Goodbye, a pet home euthanasia service in London. Annie heads up the client care team where she guides and supports owners when their pet reaches the end of its life. And today she is here with me so we can share our experiences in an effort to help people who are facing this difficult situation. Just a heads up, with this episode contains discussions around grief and pet bereavement, which some listeners may find upsetting. Annie, welcome to the consult room. Hello, it's exciting to be this side of the uh, the camera, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> In your experience, what causes people to struggle so much with this decision? I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that in our day-to-day lives, when it comes to our relationships with people, we don't have to make those decisions. We, we, we don't decide when somebody dies. Um, and so to actually have to take that responsibility with a pet, it, for many people who are first-time pet owners who may have never had to do that before, is incredibly daunting and, and probably quite frightening as well. And it's the responsibility, I think, is the, is the thing that really, really people struggle with. It's obviously a really emotional time, but from my perspective, one thing that I think really separates out the experience of humans and pets is this emotion guilt. It seems to really surface and people feel really guilty at making the decision. Like, why do you think that is? Because we're making the decision and it's... it's... (sighs) How do you quantify? And that's the big question, isn't it? Am I doing the right thing at the right time? And that undertaking of of kind of being the person to sign that away, you, you're going to have a sense of guilt. And I think that was the one thing I found really interesting. I quite recently did um, some bereavement training from the Blue Cross, which was invaluable. But they did express that one of the core feelings and emotions that pet owners experience that we don't as humans when we go through grief when we grieve a family member other than a pet is is guilt and shock but primarily guilt and i think that's because we are the ones that have to usually make that decision to let them go and i think from when i speak to owners the thing that i think people really struggle with is the guilt of making the decision too soon and effectively yeah. robbing their pet of you know the last days or the guilt of not making the decision soon enough and then the pet's health yeah. deteriorates and they see them start to suffer so they're almost people get themselves in this situation really where they're kind of damned if they do and they're damned if they don't and the, the guilt kind of wraps up any decision that they then end up making absolutely and you're so right i think quite often 
more often than not, if anything, people feel more guilty that they didn't do it sooner. And I think that happens more frequently than though the feelings of guilt that you do it too soon, because usually something has propelled you to that point where you even have to consider it. And it's actually letting it go beyond that point because your guilt inhibits you from making that decision. And I think that's that's a really good point. And we see that a lot in veterinary practice, I think. And quite often, if people have had pets put to sleep in the past, they will say to us, or certainly have done in my experience, you know, oh, I, I, I didn't do it soon enough. I let them go on too long and I felt terrible for letting them, I feel like I let them suffer. So I think, again, that feeling of guilt can really vary depending on whether or not this is the first time you've had to make the decision versus if you've had to make it numerous times definitely you just referenced that people who might be owning their first pet do you think there is a difference between people who possibly going through this experience for the first time versus people that might have owned pets all their life or had multiple pets where they've faced this decision quite a few times yeah 100 percent would agree with that and i think a good way to kind of liken that is having a uh, if you have a child for the first time you've never done it before everything's new um, and the same for having a pet for the first time everything's new it's all a learning experience and when we get a pet for the first time we don't think about what happens at the very end we think about everything that happens there and then you're you're learning on your feet as you go when you have had pets before whether you've had them when you were younger or you've had multiple pets as an adult I think when you go into that experience and buy or rescue another animal, you already know that you're going to be faced with that decision because you've been faced with it before. So the way you, your expectations and your way you manage that, I think is going to be completely different to somebody who obviously has not had to deal with that and probably hasn't even had to think about it until, you know, their pet hopefully reaches a ripe old age. As veterinary professionals, we have to support pet owners uh, through this difficult time, like, you know, ev every day, pretty much. Is it different when it's our own pets? Oh, God, yeah, 100%, 100%. I don't think it's any easier um, for veterinary professionals to have to make that decision. Um, actually, interestingly, the weekend just passed a really good colleague, a fr friend of mine, she's a vet, I had to put to sleep her her dear old Labrador and she was very elderly, bless her. And she knew that the time had come and she was accepting of that and very pragmatic and practical that you know it was the right thing to do but she was really struggling with the idea of being with her at the end and you know I know her very well and she would normally say to clients and certainly say to them if you can bring yourself to be with your pet at the end it's something we definitely advise so it was interesting that she was struggling so much with the idea of doing that herself and I think sometimes we as veterinary professionals almost have that little bit of too much knowledge um it's not always a good thing um, and we know about the grief that comes afterwards we, we've experienced it we, we experience it with our clients and sometimes you might end up as, as a veterinary professional having to go through that yourself with your own pet and then fling yourself straight back into work and it may be that you know that same day you end up having to perform that sort of service for a, for a client so it's not it's definitely not easier uh, for a veterinary professional no I don't think so. One thing that I've learned over the years uh, and I'm sure you'll echo this is that we see and I think probably understand more now a lot of the emotions that um, accompany this this process and i'm going to talk about the specific emotions in a minute but i have found and i've started doing this a lot more recently that talking really openly about grief and talking about the guilt and the anxiety 
and because I recognize that's what people are feeling. And I think early on in my career, we used to just kind of almost try and um, make light of a bad situation and say, mm-hmm. oh, you, know, you know, but now I, I think sometimes facing into that really raw emotion and having open conversations about how people are feeling, I think, I think for me, feels better and helps people process what they're what they're feeling a lot better yeah absolutely i think um we've been quite conditioned to try and almost not even use the word death um with when it comes to euthanasia it's very commonly obviously in the profession we say put to sleep um we use different terminology to make it sound better than what it is and i think as you say we we need to be we need to confront what it is in, in our language as well as what we have to do with our emotions as well. And I think it can really help to sort of talk to people more openly about what to expect, how to, and when to expect it. I mean, should we be having these conversations, you know, years before it's likely to happen and hopefully, you know, with new pet owners that have never experienced it before, should we be priming them to think about things like this? And it sounds, it sounds all very depressing and morbid but I think actually we, we're doing a disservice to ourselves if we pretend it's not going to happen or we don't prepare our clients especially as veteran professionals for what is inevitable essentially. So let's talk about the emotions then in a previous episode uh, we talked to Diane James who runs the pet bereavement support service at Blue Cross and she talked a lot about anticipatory grief and I found that conversation really fascinating because I recently had a friend who was really struggling to make the decision to put her dog to sleep but actually she made herself quite poorly with that you know the anticipation of that grief. Have you come across cases where actually you know, that emotion actually starts marring people's judgment or um, really kind of making them unwell from a, you know, from a health perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen it many times, um, both in practice and obviously as part of the Home Goodbye, um, as Home Goodbye service, that we have clients that call us that are completely debilitated by this feeling of guilt and they live with it every day they they know it's coming and it's all they can think of and physically and mentally completely incapacitated by it and i definitely see that um and it doesn't have to just be with an elderly animal that's been diagnosed with something terminal it, it can be quite often in a situation that's happened suddenly with you know accidents emergencies that occur um and they, you know, their their animal is in hospital and very unwell, and they're kind of faced with this really difficult decision. And they're anticipating the worst outcome, and it's completely and utterly taken over their life. It's 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 a pretty awful feeling, and we don't really have that. Well, we, I think we do have that as humans. With if we have a family member that's diagnosed with a terminal illness, absolutely, you can definitely relate that. But we feel it more with our pets, mainly because of that decision that we have to take, um, and essentially sign away. We also talked about another emotion called echo grief, and I found the conversation really fascinating on the previous episode because I've seen this so many times, and I just had um, a, a really good example of this just the other day where a lady um, had made the decision to put her cat to sleep. It was an old cat and it had lots of health problems, but she'd only had the cat for a year because she'd actually inherited the cat from her parents, and both parents had sadly died the year before now she was overwhelmed with grief and couldn't quite understand why 
But actually, as I talked it through with her and I said, actually, you're not just grieving for the cat, you're grieving from the memories of, you know, of the association of, of this little cat, which is your, your mother and father. And I think that really helped her to, to kind of understand, oh, oh, that's why. Because actually, she just, she really couldn't rationalise why having this old cat that she'd taken yeah. on for a year was causing her, from her perspective, probably more grief than she'd felt, you know, before. And, and as I explained to her, this is this is a summation of all the grief that you've probably experienced in the last um, few years. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. Have you got any examples of where you've heard about echo grief as well? Yeah, and I didn't know what it was until recently, if I'm honest. It's only recently that I've known to identify it as that. Um, but absolutely, and it's because animals can be that very tangible link to another person that's so important in our lives. And a really good example for me is actually personally, my grandfather rescued two cats when my grandmother passed away and they were his companions and they were uh, Buffy and Phoenix and they were his two companions and they went everywhere with him uh, one was always indoors with him one was always outdoors with him and he sadly passed away um, and shortly thereafter Phoenix passed away um, but Buffy was was still with us and went to go live with my aunt and uncle and now he he was a funny old cat. He became really antisocial, didn't really mix with anybody, was a little bit aloof, shall we say. And I always I always thought, well, he's probably grieving for my granddad. I know that's, you know, whether that's a projection or not is a different conversation. But when he passed away, which was some years later, it felt like it was it was the last link to my granddad. And it was really hard. It, I grieved my relationship with with this pussycat was not particularly strong I didn't live with him myself but I was so upset about it and I was almost more upset than I have been with family pets that I've grown up with and again I now recognize that is that he was my last link to my grandfather so yeah it's I'm it exists for sure and as I say it wasn't something I would recognize to know that that's what what it was I was experiencing until until recently there's definitely other examples I have, particularly around um, the when you have, and, and the classic one springs to mind, and I can think of this lady really clearly, uh, an elderly lady who'd lost her husband, um, you know, a few years before, and their dog was the, the, the kind of, like you say, that link. They'd had the dog together, they'd owned the dog together, they'd walked the dog together, and at the point at which the dog was then sadly euthanized, um, it brought back all the emotions of losing a husband. And you see that quite a lot. And I, I honestly feel that we're not really equipped to deal with that no. because you see that as it walks away from you out of the console yeah. room. And um, it's really tough, isn't it, to see it. But that's why it's great to know that there are aftercare and support lines. Absolutely. across. In an ideal world, we wouldn't have to make this decision until our pets had lived a fulfilled life and, and got to a ripe old age. But that's just not how life works, is it? Do you think that there is a difference in the emotion when things may happen suddenly, like an accident or an injury, or somebody has to make that decision in a younger pet that might have developed a terminal disease? So I think obviously we, we experience all of the emotions as you would if you had an older animal, but I think that's when the shock comes into it. And as I said, there's shock and guilt are the two sort of emotions that we experience more when we come to grieving as pet owners. And having a young animal that suddenly, you know, is injured significantly or has an advanced disease process that we weren't prepared for, then I think then shock is definitely a big part of that. And again, I think guilt is still uh, plays a huge role, especially if there's nothing that you can do um 
feeling of helplessness, hopelessness. Mm. So I don't think that changes necessarily versus the age, but obviously one would hope that you wouldn't have to be faced with that decision. And certainly it's not as easy to prepare for that with a young animal or an accident versus an animal that you know is getting on in age and you start seeing signs and all the rest of it at least then there's a sense of preparedness that you can put yourself through whereas yeah younger animals you're never going to unfortunately really have that so i think it's i think it is slightly different but again i think we 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 still grieve in the same way it's just perhaps those emotions are a bit more acute in certain areas so we, we've talked about how difficult the decision can be and why it's difficult. And we've talked about the emotions that surround it. So how do we bring this back to something really practical and tangible for people that are going through this process? I think when people call me and they say, I think I, I think it's time, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. It's, it's always useful to come down to something very logical in the sense of, right, okay, if we if we take aside like an accident or something that's unprepared for we say an elderly dog and who isn't quite right anymore i would always say to you right what what is it that they're they're doing what is it that they're not doing are they having good more good days versus bad days um are they able to go on their favorite walks what's their appetite like are they eating well are they behaving in the way they would normally? So if you have a, a you know a dog that would always get up and greet people who come through the door, are they disinterested? Because actually sometimes by going back to those things and the owner can then recognise that there has been a deterioration maybe or that they're not quite as well as they think they are. And it's very hard when we live with our pets day to day. We, we kind of want to see what we want to see. Um, we don't necessarily want to recognise that something might not be 100 percent so certainly bringing that to the owner and going through that almost in a, in a like a checklist fashion and saying to them right well let's look at what they're doing and what they're not doing can help them to actually recognize that there are more problems than they perhaps thought there were i think it's really good that you have brought in some of those assessments that owners can do and i always try and make it really simple so i talk about mobility appetite and behavior as you just talked about there, but mobility is a really important one for me is are they able to walk around, get around, go for a walk if they're a dog, do that part of their, you know, routine that they really enjoyed. Appetite is obviously something that owners often notice first, I would say, um, because we want and <laughs> need our pets to <laughs> eat. Um, but that behaviour one is a little bit more difficult to assess, I think, especially mm-hmm. in older pets who are um, generally might be a little bit more introvert and might be seeking a bit, you know, a, a bit of quiet time yeah. generally. Yeah. So um, it's it's a bit of a, an assessment of those three areas, isn't it? And some, yeah. I think, drive people to seek advice sooner than the mm-hmm. others. So, for example, behaviour is a bit of a... Uh, kind of a, a, a grey area people often look at them and think oh are they are they you know they don't seem to be as interactive they seem to be a bit more withdrawn but things like mobility and appetite are very very clear aren't they in my mind yeah for sure um although i would say you know quite often i will get abnormal behaviors mm. presented um he's pacing around at night you know mm. or with cats or they're going outside and then coming back in that they've forgotten that they've gone outside and that's certainly something i recognize with my own um, family cat uh, but yeah, and so abnormal behaviour is actually more so than perhaps, as you say, withdrawn. And again, sometimes it can be a case of, well, you know, you need to seek a vet's advice before 
um, you proceed is it may be a medical condition it may be something that can be addressed but you're absolutely right I think um, appetite and mobility are the things that people notice because as you say we we move we eat it's something we do routinely it's something our pets should be doing routinely that we recognize as part of our routine as well walking the dog is integral to our routine after so many years and if they're not wanting to do it for as long or at all then a big that's a big red flag isn't it this episode is sponsored by Superdog from Vitabiotics, the UK's number one vitamin company. Like all members of the family, your dog needs a balanced diet that includes a range of vitamins and minerals to stay healthy and full of vitality. Superdog's chewable, tasty braised beef tablets are packed with over 21 nutrients, expertly formulated for your special companion. Superdog's available now at Amazon, Ocado, Paws, Superdrug and Vitabiotics.com. I think where owners often have difficulty is this whole concept of good days versus bad days um, and where pets might seem like they rally and they, you know, they're eating mm. all the dinner and they seem to be interactive today. And then the next day they they seem to go downhill. And I think people find that really difficult, yeah. especially when pets are kind of going up and down uh, and really not being able to assess a, an ongoing deterioration. And that people really struggle with that. Have you got any advice? for people that are kind of going through that now i think as you say that's really difficult because that can go on for quite some time um with these kind of this sort of roller coaster if you like i think the only advice i can give in that situation and and i i would find useful is is to keep a diary really um it's easy to forget and it's really quite hard to say we concentrate on the good things as human nature for the most part so it's going to be easy to forget perhaps some of the bad days so i think writing or keeping a journal or a diary for a few weeks to really keep track on what they're doing is probably a good way of kind of getting that measure and you know and understanding actually how they're doing a bit better yeah i think and and that that remembering the good days or or kind of highlighting the good days it, it, that's hope isn't it that's, yeah. that's people that are really kind of got hope at the forefront of uh, of the situation but actually yeah. i like that idea of keeping a diary because it turns that into quite an objective measure yeah. and you can really that you know good day versus bad day becomes really objective then doesn't it yeah um, and it, if it's hard to read back through yourself i mean that's something that you present to your vet who can then have a look at that as you say objectively and say well oh, actually you know it doesn't look as as good or it's perhaps a bit better than you thought so yeah i really struggled with this uh with my own dog dolly as you as you know um she got a spinal cord tumor she was quite old she was 12 but she was otherwise very active very Mm -hmm. happy you know no other health problems so her mobility was being affected in terms of um you know not not being able to walk yet mentally she was still you know she had all the faculties and she was quite happy and appetite was as good as ever so i actually really struggled with this one because yeah. even though i use this as a, a a three-point assessment to really simplify quality of life i did struggle but i knew from seeing dogs deteriorate from a mobility perspective that actually their behavior starts to become affected they start mm-hmm. to become quite distressed if they can't stand up you know and i've seen dogs that once they start you know soiling themselves 
Yeah, dignity. Clean. Yeah, they get they get quite distressed um, at situations like that. So I kind of knew that even though her mobility was the key indicator for quality of life, that actually the other ones would start to become affected as well. So I think that helped me. But I think it's it's a bit harder, isn't it, when owners haven't seen that progression before, when they yeah. think, oh, well, you know, maybe it's just one one thing that that's been affected and the other things are fine so maybe we can just keep going and ultimately there's an overall kind of well-being um, yeah. impact isn't there on any of those individual things absolutely and as you said about dignity as well i think with with knowledge you know that you don't want them to get to a point where that they've lost their dignity or that their faculties are then compromised in in other areas which you wouldn't have expected to see so so, so necessarily so i think that's another thing again with other with pet owners that aren't necessarily um, educated or haven't been through it themselves is sort of educating them to understand that that's something to to really be aware of and mindful of it's not necessarily oh your dog's got arthritis and they're going to get a bit creaky and they're going to struggle to walk but that actually can impact on their appetite and it can make them feel lousy and in pain and in pain can really affect their behavior in turn so so it's quite difficult isn't it quality of life because like you say we try and bring it back to an objective measure but for a lot of people it can be quite subjective uh, and i know for a fact that what some people would consider acceptable uh, from a pet and a human perspective in terms of quality of life, other people wouldn't. So how do you kind of navigate through that when people are asking you the questions? How do you try and uh, comprehend people's different perspectives on quality of life? That's a really difficult one to answer, isn't it? Because again, you have to, you have to know the person, I think, or know the client or, you know, to a reasonable extent to know what their measures are, I suppose. I think if anyone's ever asking another person's opinion, perhaps on quality of life, then, it, you know, it, they may just be asking for an opinion, but equally so quite often I tend to find in those situations they're asking because they're doubting perhaps their own measures, their own, their own kind of opinions on what they think quality of life now is. Um, a good example for me, um, it, you know, in veterinary that I've seen in practice before was a, a 22-year-old cat, you know, 22, phenomenal age, who was still getting about, just about getting in and out of the litter tray, wasn't going outside anymore, but was still eating ravenously. Um, appetite was there, eating. And, and for this owner, it was he you know he's not ready because he's eating he's eating really well and as i said to her no absolutely but looking at him she he wouldn't let he wouldn't let her groom him he's he looked he looked unkempt untidy he had really painful mats over him which we couldn't sedate you couldn't sedate at 22 year old he had kidney disease there was lots of underlying factors and i said well i know he's eating and it's great he's eating everything else is sort of suggestive that he is an uncomfortable and in pain pussycat and I think that's the thing isn't it is when we look at those measures it's actually about pain a lot of the time and what sort of suffering they might be feeling and trying to put a put a measure on that almost sometimes it might be a little bit easier almost to kind of assess how painful an animal might be and taking those other kind of mobility and appetite and all those other other things out of the equation, um, so I think sometimes it's, it's it's worth if an owner comes to me and is saying, "Oh, you know, I, but but they're doing such and such and such. I don't think it's time because they're doing such and such." But actually, 
there is something else going on and you can see that that animal is suffering a little bit now when we take that out of the equation and say okay take the appetite out of the equation take that away then they can see a little bit more clearly and perhaps be a bit more subjective about what their what their pet might be experiencing and there is actually another element to this isn't there that we haven't really talked about which is the practicality of it so i um i recall a lady who is an elderly lady who herself had mobility problems uh, and she had a old labrador who was really struggling to stand and walk but she lived on the fourth floor um, of a block of flats with no lift and from her own kind of I suppose values perspective she was really comfortable with her dog uh, struggling to walk and and had all the right intentions of no I can take him to the toilet four times a day I can you know I, I think it's fine I'll nurse him if he saws himself in bed I'm happy to clean it and and that from her perspective was was okay from a quality of life perspective but practically she just couldn't cope and she tried uh, for a few days um, but when she came back into the practice we had to say look you know you're actually physically making yourself quite quite unwell as well struggling with this dog um, and with the best will in the world neighbors are willing to help aren't they for, for a period of time but but when it's four times a day and she just physically couldn't cope so there was that that element of there as well and that was really difficult for her because there just wasn't a you know a practical way of of her facing into the dog's um health uh condition uh, but actually, from a will perspective, she really wanted to keep going. And that was a bit of a challenge, I would say. But it does have to be factored in, doesn't it? The practicality of it. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good point is that quite often we do have pet owners that have relatable diseases as well themselves. And they they mirror their animals with them and they, and they the idea of that being almost a reason to to let them go mm. is a bit scary. And I, I can see why, you know, for example, you know, we've had really really difficult to control diabetic cases um, especially recently actually and it's been it's been a labor of love to try and get them to a safe point but they've you know had multiple issues of hospitalization where they've had to come in and they've been really quite unwell now the owner's diabetic so for them to have to make that decision to actually let them go because we could, you know, it, they've exhausted all avenues and things are still not working out. It's a bit, it's a bit like, well, who, who's going to pass the death sentence on me now? And so they see that, and then that's another, another thing that owners quite often will contend with. And as you say, with mobility, elderly clients with with dogs or cats with arthritis or with mobility issues, it's it's very tough, I suppose, to sort of say, okay, well, they're suffering. It's now probably time to let them go when they themselves will be struggling with their own mm. mobility. And there is another very practical conversation to be having, especially in the current economic situation in the country, was where people, a lot of households are experiencing financial hardship. And just those conversations we had earlier about guilt, I often have to say to people, look, you know, don't feel guilty about not being able to afford veterinary care. Don't feel guilty about your situation, your circumstances changing, because actually, you know, that's another issue, isn't it, right now that we're yeah. facing where some people are, you know, oh, if I was in a better position, I would be able to afford this or I'd be able to deal with this. And But currently, because of my circumstances, I'm not. Yeah, that's a difficult one, isn't it, as well? And and again, are you, 
we all want to think that we've done the absolute best and I think this is where I think euthanasia needs to be seen for what it is um, and I, I have said before now to clients euthanasia is a treatment option it's it, it's not necessarily giving up just because you know you're financially unable to afford something or or there are no more treatment options available and um, I think euthanasia shouldn't be seen as this kind of be finite you know you, that's it one stop only um it is a treatment option and it's one of the kindest things and i say this as, as well quite often to, to clients it is one of the last kindnesses we can offer our animals euthanasia is to end suffering we can't do that as humans for ourselves and you know that's a debate for another day as to whether or not i agree with that and i i you know I think the fact that we can euthanize animals to end suffering is something that actually is hard as it is to say this should be embraced rather than be held as some sort of pariah um, that you know shouldn't happen. Yeah, and I think that's one of the um, one of the main reasons that you know we did actually set up home goodbye because, mm -hmm. um, and I think the experiences of vets in in the pandemic were, I would mm. say, pretty awful. Um, the yeah. fact that we for you know, to protect human health, we weren't able to let people be with their animals at the end. I found really, really difficult, like in terms of one of the, the main kind of, I suppose, scars from the pandemic. That that for me Absolutely. was one of the biggest ones. So being able to offer an end of life service um, in people's homes, which is essentially what, what we now do. But um, I think that the advice I would give to people is, is like you say, um, don't shy away from from that as the right thing to do. It is absolutely in in an in, in array of options. It is often sometimes the the best or the only option. And yeah. don't feel the guilt or the shame in taking that decision. But what I would also say to people is really really plan it. Um, mm. Make sure because in my experience. Um, the lack of planning leads to those less than ideal situations where people have to rush to events in an emergency. Yeah. Um, and invariably, that always we've worked in night emergency practice for years, and it always happens out of hours, and it's always yeah. stressful, and you know, and and it's and it's not done with that kind of um, calmness and dignity that I feel should be offered to to pets at the end. No, and it, I, I agree. I think the pandemic was a harrowing experience for veterinary professionals and pet owners alike. But yeah, emergency euthanasias, um, as we as you've just pointed out, have never run smoothly. Um, because and they're never in the ideal circumstances and quite often those clients have come to a practice they're not even familiar with with an, and that, that their pet's not even familiar with. And there's no way, even with the best will in the world, that you can make that as a, a pleasant how can i put this i suppose in a you can make that a a nice memory um or, or you know even just try to make it like a peaceful memory it's always going to have that kind of frantic energy behind it and and quite often as well those animals are ex in extremis so i think the fact that you know as you said we set up the home goodbyes because people it encourages people to plan as well and we all let's face it the ideal was to all die at home in our beds and mm -hmm. why wouldn't we want the same for our animals really and if you can plan for that and you they, you can offer them that then I, I can't see why that wouldn't be the way we'd all try to go to be honest I think a lot of people say to me I don't know how you can do that part of mm. the job and it always seems to be the bit that people really think that we would struggle with but I think the experiences we had in the pandemic I, I would agree I think that I if that was the if that was how we did euthanasia 
I don't think I would have uh, stayed in the profession very long, no. really. But no. as you say, you know, taking the opportunity to do it in a in a really relaxed, unhurried, calm and compassionate way, such mm-hmm. as in a home environment. Or do you know what? There's a lot of practices now that have now dedicated euthanasia rooms that yeah. give people um, a lot more time. And, and actually, um, at one of my own hospitals, uh, I was there the other day at Grimsby, they actually light a, a candle on reception where yeah. they've been put to sleep. And I know a lot of practices do that to indicate mm-hmm. to everybody, you know, can can we all be calm and, and quiet yeah. because somebody's going through through that process so I think um obviously you know emergencies happen and sometimes you have mm-hmm. to to go to a practice unexpectedly but but you know I think from a practical perspective just just really uh considering that you know the time is coming and really making those arrangements to to do it in your own way I, I think that's what I find helps people along that process and lessens those feelings of of guilt i think yeah i definitely think it helps with the grieving process um in my experience certainly um those owners that have had to come into those emergency situations or haven't had really any time to plan or, or thought they had to plan um which is you know it's fine it happens those those owners have struggled i think more and i think that's a fair assessment um compared to certainly in our experience with home goodbye and our clients that we see um i'm certainly not negating that they don't feel guilt and and are terribly sad about what losing their pet but have all kind of echoed that haven't they that they were just so glad that they could let them go at home with their family around them at peace and that that's that was the whole the whole reason wasn't it for, for doing this and it's just so nice to be able to offer it and I mean, it's good to see that more practices are giving more time our practices um just set up a euthanasia room actually as we speak and it's nice to be able to put that separate have that separate space where they can go mm-hmm. as well so i think actually that's one good thing that's come out of the pandemic almost is veterinary practices are striving making you know huge strides to try and improve that that area of service because we recognize that it just fell apart in in the in the pandemic Annie, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to yourself and indeed to veterinary professionals everywhere for all the care and support you give to clients this really difficult time. Um, I will definitely get you back soon as I know that we get so many questions on this area and these conversations can be so, so helpful for people. Absolutely. I'd be delighted to. If you are finding it hard to make the decision to euthanize your pet, then please do reach out to your vet. And remember, the grieving process starts even before your loss. So if you're really struggling, then there are services out there to support you like the Blue Cross Pet Bereavement Support Service. For pet owners in London and the surrounding areas, myself and Annie referenced a home euthanasia service called Home Goodbye. For more information, please call us on 0208 057 You've been listening to The Consult Room. I really hope you've enjoyed today's show. Please do subscribe, follow or share this podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback. If you want to get in touch or collaborate, then do reach out to us at theconsultroom.co.uk or connect with me on social media as Dr Paul the Vet or Dr Paul Magdalene.